This is Richard Pothig, and we continue on the sidewalks of New York, my autobiography. This is Chapter 24, An Adirondack Summer. The summer of 1950 was a point of transition. It was the experience which tied together my past and my future. The city had always been my context. My summer experiences had sharpened my focus on my roots. I began to see that my ministry should be among working people. There were a few people at Union who came from a working-class background. Bob Davidson reminded me on one occasion that he could name only three persons during our time at Union. Bob himself, me, and another person I don't remember. As I began my second year at Union, my goal was to finish the coursework and get on with my vocation. I had two years to go. I went about my seminary work with a new purpose. I took all the required courses and concentrated on my courses with Niebuhr. I looked forward to field work. It was the one way to keeping in touch with the reality of congregational life, even if the schedule meant only Sunday and one other night in a week. In September, the seminary fieldworker director, Art Swift, sent Shelby Rooks and me to a congregation in Palisades, New Jersey. Shelby Rooks was the son of the well-known black Presbyterian pastor who led the St. James Presbyterian congregation in Harlem. Shelby's mother was the famous black singer, Dorothy Maynard. St. James was one of the New York Presbytery's few black congregations. I had visited the congregation as a member of a young people's group at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church when we were engaged in cooperative interracial youth programs. Shelby had the single room next to Jim McNaughton's and mine on the sixth floor at Hastings Hall. He was a suave individual and a smooth talker. I was impressed with his ability to knock out course papers with great ease. Most of us would spend long hours researching and agonizing. Shelby never seemed to get down to work until the day before the paper was due. Then I would hear him in the next room banging away on his typewriter. In the morning, he would have his paper in hand. Before coming to Union, Shelby had moved from the Presbyterian Church to become a Congregationalist. He would become a leader in his chosen denomination. After Union between the Congregationalists and the Evangelical and Reformed Church in 1957, Shelby went on to a succession of leadership positions in the United Church of Christ. In the 1970s, Shelby was called to the presidency of Chicago Theological Seminary, CTS, while I was director of the Institute on the Church and Urban Industrial Society. We were one block away from one another. After his time at CTS, he became head of the Theological Education Fund and finally was called to be Executive Secretary of the Board of Homeland Ministries of the United Church of Christ. In the fall of 1950, Shelby and I both made the journey out of the Palisades. Shelby went out for the first interview. The Palisades Congregational Church was a working-class congregation in a tight New Jersey community which overlooked the Hudson River. It had a perfect view of the skyline of Manhattan. It was a community which was also known for its mafia connections. 
The core of the congregation were faithful Italian Protestants. In a community like the Palisades, Italian Protestants had to be tenacious believers. The pastor, Bill C., was a slight, amiable man of liberal persuasion. Shelby was such a polished individual, I did not count on getting the job in the Palisades. I was a Presbyterian and Shelby was a Congregationalist. After his interview, Shelby caught me on the sixth floor hall. He told me the interview went well, but he didn't think he would get the job, nor did he feel that it was his kind of community. As matters turned out, the pastor hired me on for the year. He put me to work immediately. I was assigned to preach within the first month I was there. This was to be my first official sermon. During my first field work assignment in East Orange, I had not been given such an opportunity. The Saturday night before I was to preach in the Palisades, a violent wind, rain, and thunderstorm descended upon the New York metropolitan region. When I awakened on Sunday morning, there was some question whether I would be able to get the transportation to New Jersey. I started out early and caught a bus over the George Washington Bridge into the Palisades. The town was in a shambles. Tree limbs and branches were strewn everywhere. Signs had been ripped off shops and were lying on the street. Neon signs hung, twisted on the sides of buildings. When I got to the church, I was told the electricity was off. The pastor decided to hold the service in the living room of the manse. We moved the lectern out from the church, brought over the floral arrangements, and waited for the congregation. They filled the living room and out into the hall. We sang our hymns without accompaniment, but with great spirit. I was so moved by the spontaneity and the informality that I lost my nervousness. It was great to begin by preaching in a house church. After sending the flock forth into the wreckage of palisades, the pastor caught me as I was leaving. That was a challenge for you, to begin your career on the heels of a storm. We always worry about how seminarians will preach. They come with the latest theology they are hearing and preach way over people's heads. But you were simple, down to earth, and that was good. You rose to the occasion. Back at seminary, I was doing what came naturally to me, engaging in politics. During our middle year, Jim McNaughton and I decided we needed a more lively student council. We need to deal with the issues in the seminary community. We asked Bill Carey, William Sterling Carey, to be exact, if he would run for president of the council. Bill was a Baptist from New Jersey. He was one of the eight black students in the community of 430 seminarians at Union Seminary. This was about a 2% ratio. Bill was a mature, solid student who was easy to know. Bill and I had worked together in the refractory at Union. I knew from our conversations that it had not been easy for him to attend Union Seminary. Within his Baptist community, he had been expected to choose a seminary which would better prepare him for a ministry in a black Baptist congregation. When he decided to come to Union, he knew that he might have to find another religious home. It did not take much effort on our part to get Bill elected president for our senior year. Bill Carey became a pastor in the Harlem Congregation of the United Church of Christ. He later was elected president of the National Council of Churches of Christ in the USA. I renewed my acquaintance with Bill Carey in the 1970s. 
when he came to Chicago as the Association President of the Northern Illinois Conference of the United Church of Christ. This was while I was at Icuus in the seminary community in Hyde Park. The academic year moved quickly, and before I knew it, it was the summer of 1951. This was the last summer to use for a learning experience before graduating in June 1952. Another unique possibility for summer work came up in the spring. Jim McNaughton caught wind of it and asked me, how would you like to work in the Adirondacks this summer? Doing what? Preaching and working outdoors in the mountains, Jim told me. That sounds great. Where did you hear about this? One of the seminarians from upstate New York told me about it. Frank Reed, the pastor of Old Forge in the Utica Presbytery, has been scouting for seminarians who might like to work in the Adirondacks this summer. It's like the work you did last summer in Pittsburgh, except this time it's in the mountains. We would also have preaching assignments. When do we begin and how do we know where we will be assigned? As soon as class is finished, we head upstate. We meet Frank Reed at Paul Smith College, and he'll make the assignments then. I'll commit us if you're ready to spend the summer in the Adirondacks. This sounds like a good counterpoint to the steel mills last summer. That was an invaluable experience, not only the work, but our seminar discussions. It's the only way to learn after being cooped up in a mill last year. The open air, the trees, the sunshine will be a welcome change. Little did I know what I was saying. I was to see plenty of trees that summer. Six of us from Union Seminary signed up for the trip to the Adirondacks. When we got to Tupper Lake, we met Frank Reed, the initiator of the summer project. Frank Reed was a tall, angular man who appeared to have spent many summers and winters in the outdoors. He looked like he might have been a lumberjack. The Adirondack Project gained immediate respect with the presence of Frank Reed. As Frank was describing the different Adirondack parishes, one project called for two persons. Since Jim and I were in this together... We said we would take that assignment. It will be with Jay Johnson, the Adirondack Lodger Parish in the St. Lawrence Presbytery, Frank Reed said. There are four congregations in the Lodger Parish. Wanakina, where the Johnson family lives, Star Lake, Cranberry Lake, and Newton Falls. I immediately liked the sound of the town's names, lakes and falls and an Indian name thrown in, Wanakina. The people in all four congregations don't add up to a hundred, Frank continued, But during the summertime, the region changes with summer residents and tourists coming up for their vacation. Syracuse University has a school of forestry at Wanakina. It provides some stability to the Wanakina congregation. I think you will also be working with the school of forestry during the week. That intrigued me even more. What kind of work would we be doing with the school of forestry? After we finished our discussion of assignments, We headed off for Wanakina, which was to be the base of our operations. That Jim had a car was a boon to us. It was, in effect, a boon for me. This was the summer I would learn to drive. Jim was to bear the brunt of those lessons. I had felt out of it all these years. Many young people learned to drive by the time they were 16 or 17. I was 26, 
and still without a driver's license. As we drove west to Wanakina from Tupper Lake, the scenery was magnificent. Plenty of wide open spaces, rolling countryside interspersed with lakes and thousands of trees. The road stretched out in front of us with little traffic. A good place to learn how to drive, I thought. We reached Ranakina, a spot hidden away in the midst of all those mountains. It was a small community whose major institution was the Syracuse School of Forestry. In fact, the entire economy of the community was dependent upon the school. The manse for the Adirondack Lodge Parish was in Wanakina. Jay and Jean Johnson were waiting for us, along with their two young sons. As soon as we met them, we knew this would be a good summer. They were happy to see us and greeted us literally with open arms. It was like they had been waiting for us a long time. They were also going to enjoy the summer. We would have rooms in the manse. We would take our meals there. We would have the run of the manse when the Johnsons took off for their vacation. Jay outlined the summer's assignments. Jim and I would alternate preaching every Sunday at two of the four congregations. There would be an early service at one congregation and a later service at the other, with enough time to get from one church to the other. Newton Falls and Star Lake were paired together, and Cranberry Lake and Wanakina was the other combination. After we finished our services, we would return to Wanakina for a Sunday chicken dinner at the School of Forestry. We would be employed during the week, Jay Johnson told us, with the project of the School of Forestry. One of the staff of the school would take us out into the mountains to do white pine weaveling. What's that, white pine weaveling, I asked. I'll let the foreman tell you on Monday morning when you begin, Jay answered. On Monday morning, we walked over to the School of Forestry, armed with our brown bag lunches which Gene Johnson had prepared. The school was a cluster of buildings down the road from the Wanakina Presbyterian Church. Jay took us into the office and introduced us to what staff was around on Monday morning. We were told our supervisor was out at the workshed. He would meet us there for our work assignment. We walked to the workshed where a khaki-clad man was loading tools into a truck. He greeted us cordially, but with a certain reserve. His demeanor struck me as a man made for this terrain, a man of the mountains. He was a man of few words. He spent most of his life walking mountain trails by himself and taking his work seriously. I sensed as he looked at us that he didn't expect much work from us. A couple of seminarians he had to supervise for the whole summer, but he would make the most of it. Phil Haddock was his name. Finished loading up the tools in the back of the pickup truck. Axes, shovels, wedges, and some sections of long poles. The sections of long poles intrigued me. We climbed in the front seat with him and headed off down the road into the mountains. After we had driven about 20 minutes, we drove off the main highway up a dirt road into a mountain. We drove up the road about another 10 minutes and stopped in a clearing at the edge of the woods. The journey had been in silence, except for small conversation between Jim and myself. We got down from the truck and unloaded the tools we would need, the axes and the long sections of pole. Then he looked at us and spoke. This whole section of mountains is a watershed. 
It was replanted with scotch and white pine in the 1930s during the Roosevelt administration by the CCC, the Civilians Conservation Corps. It's taken a long time to grow back. We have the responsibility to see that it continues as a watershed. One of the jobs you'll be doing this summer is to help keep these trees healthy and to cut out those trees that are not going to make it. I looked around me and suddenly remembered the mountains of trees I had seen on our trip to Wanakina from Tupper Lake. This was not new for Jim, who had been raised in Glens Falls in upstate New York, but for a New York City boy, it was overwhelming. I would be spending a summer getting close to all those trees. Our supervisor led us up a narrow path through the woods toward another clearing. We were carrying the axes and the sections of poles with us. He stopped at the edge of the clearing and spoke again. There are two trees you are going to know this summer and get to know well, the scotch pine and the white pine. The scotch pine you're going to cut down and the white pine you're going to weevil. He took us over to a tree. This is a scotch pine where the beavers have gotten to. He pointed to a large scar at the base of the tree. Beavers and sometimes porcupines gnaw into these trees. They leave them so badly scarred that they will have little growth. You look for these trees, and you cut them out. Just leave them where they fall. He walked us through the clearing to the other side of the woods. We stopped. He pointed to the top of a tree. He spoke again. This is a white pine which has been weeveled. If you look at the top growth of the tree, you'll see that it is drooping. That means that the white pine weevil has laid its eggs in the top of that tree, and the newly hatched weevils are eating down into the tree. For this, you put these two sections of poles together. You notice you have a clipper at the top of one section and a long cord. You position the clipper underneath where you think the wheels are and you clip off the top of the tree. Sometimes it takes three sections of pole and sometimes four. He ended his instructions. This is your job for the summer. When he finished, I (laughs) I turned to Jim Well, I told you I was looking forward to the outdoors. Plenty of fresh air and sunshine and plenty of trees. Jim and I climbed a lot of mountains that summer. We cut out a lot of scotch pine. We carried our long poles up and down the mountain, putting them together, balancing them carefully as we clipped out the white pine weevil. Sometimes we reached the top of a mountain. We would stop and survey the glory of the Adirondack Range with its breathtaking views of the valleys and the lakes below and the mountains in the distance. The cloud formations were spectacular. They could be seen far off in the distance, moving down from Canada and the northwest. Sometimes, while we were on the top of a mountain, the clouds would roll in and a thunderstorm would catch us with no place to hide. The skies would open, and we would be caught in a deluge. When the sun finally broke through, we would emerge laughing and soaked to the skin. There was nothing else to be done. After the summer ended, our supervisor had a different view of the perseverance of seminarians. Our Sunday preaching assignments were really an interlude for our mountain work, We had a lot of time to think about sermon outlines during our solitary walks on the mountains. 
Needless to say, our sermons that summer were filled with illustrations and stories from our mountain experiences. As uniform as the terrain of the northern Adirondacks appear, the congregation in which we served that summer were different in character. Wanakina was the most homogeneous and the most stable in the Adirondack Lodge parish. It was not large, but the membership of the congregation was drawn directly from the faculty, the staff, and the students of the School of Forestry. Since Jim and I were living in the manse and working out of the School of Forestry, most of our close contacts were with that congregation. Newton Falls was the most different. It could be characterized as a blue-collar congregation, since its people were drawn from the taconite mining operation of the Jones and Lachlan Corporation, a Pittsburgh steel company. Taconite, or low-grade iron ore, had been mined full-scale during World War II, when all sources of iron ore were needed. Now there was a question whether JNL would keep the taconite mine open. Often on my mountaintop joints, I could see the JNL mining operations down in the valley. It stood out as a yellow scar in the midst of the green landscape. Even up in the mountains of New York State, my summer experience in Pittsburgh Steel was not far behind. I came to realize the connectedness of the U.S. industrial economy and its penetration into all areas of American life. The Cranberry Lake and Star Lake congregations were largely dependent upon the folks who came to the Adirondacks for their summer vacation. The base of the congregation were the tradespeople and the people who had grown up in the area and never left. During the summer, the congregations doubled and tripled in size. Cranberry Lake differed in that it drew heavily upon people who had regular summer residences in the region and who often decided to retire in the community. It had a more stable and consistent year-round congregation. Jim and I enjoyed our summer pastorates. Since we worked during the week, our Saturday nights were spent burning the midnight oil sermon writing. This was a bad habit to get into in the first opportunity to hone our sermon writing skills. But it was a mutually rewarding experience for both of us. We had opportunity to share our thoughts and to talk about the responses we had had from our congregations. One of the high points of our week was our after-Sunday dinner. We look forward to our return to Wanakina and the chicken dinner served at the School of Forestry. Those who gathered at the dinner tables tended to be the congregation of the Wanakina Presbyterian Church. They were a jolly crew and welcomed us back heartily from our ministerial forays in the Adirondack Lodge Parish. They had made their pointed comments but also showed forbearance to preachers in the making.